Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, just the briefest housekeeping here. Just to say that uh, we have finally posted the bonus questions I have long been promising to subscribers. Uh, Those can be found on my website if you're logged in, or also in the subscriber feed near the related episode. And I haven't done these for every episode, but there are many going back quite a ways for people like uh, Nicholas Christakis, Donald Hoffman, Eliezer Yudkowsky, Yuval Noah Harari, Jack Dorsey, Jaron Lanier, Johan Hari, Jonathan Haidt, Matt Taibbi, Neil Ferguson, Nick Bostrom, Preet Bharara, and Stephen Fry. And so if you look in your subscriber feed going back, you will find those and as well on my website if you are logged in to your account. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Robert Plowman. Robert is a professor of behavioral genetics at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College, London. He previously held positions at the University of Colorado Boulder and at Pennsylvania State University. He's also been elected a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences and of the British Academy for his groundbreaking work in behavioral genetics. And he's the author of the fascinating book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And Robert and I get into many of the interesting and fraught questions here. We talk about the birth of behavioral genetics, the taboos around studying the influences of genes, in particular on human psychology, controversy surrounding the topic of group differences, the first law of behavioral genetics, the concept of heritability, nature and nurture, the significance of non-shared environment, which is genuinely perplexing, the way genes can shape our environments, epigenetics, genetic influences on complex traits, dimensions versus disorders, the prospect that this will land us in some Gattaca-like dystopia, heritability and equality of opportunity, the implications of genetics for parenting and education and other social policies, DNA as a fortune-telling device, and other topics. Anyway, it's a fascinating conversation. This is Important Science. And now I bring you Robert Plowman. I am here with Robert Plowman. Robert, thanks for joining me. Well, it's my pleasure. It, it seems like I've known you because I've listened to so many of your podcasts. Nice. Well, um, I have read your book. Uh, let me properly introduce your book first because it's a fantastic introduction to everything we're going to talk about, and, and there's no way we will exhaust its interest. So people should read your book. The book is Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And uh, we'll track through your, the case you, you make here pretty systematically. But, you know, first I should say, you really are one of the, the most revered people in this field of behavioral genetics. And uh, this is a field that is still somewhat under the radar for people, I think, intellectually. I mean, people know that we had the Human Genome Project some decades ago, and I think there's this, this vague sense still, somewhat analogous to the, the sense everyone had that artificial intelligence never amounted to anything, and then all of a sudden it amounted to a lot. But people have a sense that this genetic revolution hasn't really 
arrived, and yet behavioral genetics is this field in which we we're discussing the role the genes play in determining who we are in the most basic sense. I mean, really, the the nature part of human nature. And your book is a just a great introduction to that and its implications directly for psychology. But before we get into the data and your and your argument, maybe you can summarize your background a little bit. How did you get into this work? Depends how far we go back, but um, I'll start uh, at u- at university. You know, I think one of the things I hope we get to talk about, I've heard on several of your podcasts, is about the role of chance. Hmm. And genetics has a, a new kind of spin on chance. And I went to the University of Texas at Austin because I was an inner city kid in Chicago. None of my family went to university, let alone graduate school. But I had this wonderful advisor who helped me apply to graduate schools. And being a good inner city kid, when the University of Texas offered to pay for me to go, I said, well, that sounds like a good deal. So I went to the University of Texas in psychology, but they, unknown to me, had the only program in behavioral genetics in the world. It had just started at that time in the early 1970s. And, and this is a, you know, one of the, these chance events that everyone in those days, I don't know about when you were in graduate school, but in those days you had to take core courses. So you had about two years worth of courses you had to take in clinical yeah. and perception. And this, everyone had to take this course in behavioral genetics. Forty other students were in there, and it floored me. You know, I just saw this evidence for the importance of genetics. Most of it was from animal studies at that time. And I just knew right away, that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Yet, none of the other students took it up. So what is that about? You know, I don't know. But it was really a turning point in my life. And I went, it was very lucky because uh, most of the behavioral geneticists in the world were there at that moment. And I was really at the beginning of the application of genetics in psychology. And, you know, back then it was actually dangerous to be doing genetics in psychology because psychology was completely dominated by environmentalism and nurture. So I kind of grew up with the field and every, you know, I learned a lot of stuff about genetic influences. I'm sure we'll talk about genetic influences on environment and developmental changes. There's a lot we learned. And I thought, great, that was terrific and I'm happy with my career. And then along came the DNA revolution, and that's what's really changed everything. And it's all relatively new, so I don't think that's what's going to have the impact on people, because you can argue with these twin studies and adoption studies, but you just can't argue with DNA. And that's what's new, and that's what's really going to make a difference. Yeah, so we're not just talking about things like height and weight, obviously. We're talking about personality characteristics, things like how nice a person you are and how outgoing and how neurotic and how happy, how empathic, how prone to violence, and also just core capacities like intelligence. And you know whether you think about that narrowly in terms of IQ or much more loosely in terms of educational achievement, we're really talking about everything we can care about in ourselves and our children and in people we interact with in society. And the punchline here is that, and as you say in your book, that you know, DNA isn't all that matters, but it matters more than anything else. And it matters more than everything else put together in determining who we are, which is a, you know, on its face, again, a very provocative statement, even today. I mean, you, in the beginning of your book, you write a, two sentences that fairly floored me because, well, I'll actually read them. 
you say that you, you delayed writing this book in part due to cowardice because you recognized how dangerous this used to be. And you say it, it might seem unbelievable today, but 30 years ago, it was dangerous professionally to study the genetic origins of differences in people's behavior and to write about it in scientific journals. It could also be dangerous personally to stick your head up above the parapets of academia and talk about these issues to the public. Now, Robert, either you are a time traveler from the future and you wrote this book in 2050, or you're living on Mars right now, because in my world, anything less than a full commitment to the blank slate is still taboo. I mean, the people who are trying to cancel J.K. Rowling right now for just admitting that biological sex is a thing. This is the environment we're in, at a minimum, on social media. So, like, do you really not perceive this to be a fraught territory now? Well, as I say in the epilogue to the book, I was very nervous about this book coming out. My friends said it was a professional suicide note. Hmm. But I saw lots of signs that things are changing over the years. Back when I was in graduate school, the textbook said that schizophrenia was caused entirely environmentally, and even worse, by what your mother did in the first few years of life. Genetics never got a look in. So you had to be very careful about even suggesting that something might show genetic influence. But in the 40 years since, there's been a mountain of evidence from twin and adoption studies and family studies that have convinced, that's convinced most scientists that many traits, in fact, I would say all traits in psychology show significant genetic influence. And it's not just statistically significant. We're talking about a lot of influence, like explaining about half of the differences between people. So I think things have changed a lot. And I've experienced that when I've talked to the public. Mostly the, the reaction I get is that not hostility, but just ignorance. People say, well, I didn't know about that. It makes great sense. In fact, most of the public I talk to are surprised there's a big controversy. They say, you know, it sounds so reasonable. And there's a lot of evidence behind it. So I think things have changed. And so I was wondering who the people are you've been talking to that are still blank slaters. Again, there's resistance in some quarters on the far left, politically, generally, that biological sex is even a thing, right? I mean, this is what J.K. Rowling has just run into, or that, mm. that intelligence has anything to do with IQ and is whatever intelligence is, whether IQ or not, that that would be at all heritable. And then when you start talking about group differences for any trait we care about, it just becomes utterly toxic politically. And, and the truth is that there's no ethical or perceived ethical sweet spot here, because if you ascribe differences between groups to, you know, I mean, again, to take the most fraught topic here is, you know, IQ differences across racial groups, however defined, you know, Charles Murray's territory. This is just the plutonium of social science. And even acknowledging that these differences exist is taboo in some circles. They have to be artifacts of testing or, or you know, any other metric you'd be using. But once you get past that, then they have to be due to racism. And once you look past that, let's say comparing, you know, Asians to whites on IQ tests, are you, we now alleging that there's some anti-white racism that is benefiting Asians on these tests? That begins to look a little weird. But now everyone, again, is jumping out of their skin with political discomfort. 
And the truth is there is no way of accounting for these group differences that people are comfortable with. I mean, genes are the worst answer, but environment and culture and family situation, that's also a bad answer. People just don't want to say that they don't want to draw any invidious comparisons between groups on any level. We will inevitably touch this territory if only to comment on why we're not wading further into it. I just, I just want to offer a warning to both of us and to our listeners that there is no avoiding these topics on some level because, again, with the best of intentions, with no interest in specific things like IQ differences among groups, say, the moment you begin to study things like intelligence or anything else you care about at the level of the genome's implications for how people develop later in life, or just begin to tease out the difference between contributions from the environment and contributions from DNA, you get ambushed by these topics that make people incredibly uncomfortable. And even, and this is something we'll get to, you know, toward the end of our conversation where we talk about the social policy implications of all of this, but, you know, in a world where we have completely solved our political and social problems. Let's just posit a world where there is no inequality. There's zero inequality of opportunity. Everyone gets to go to the best schools and, you know, everyone is equally wealthy and has equally conscientious parents and there is nothing wrong at the level of society. Well, then in that world, every difference in outcome between people will be ascribable to differences in genetics. And that hardly seems fair to people either. So it's very difficult for people, given certain assumptions, to find any spot of comfort in this conversation. And, and I'm, I think you and I are, can see some daylight past all that and talk about how we're comfortable with what we're learning about human nature here. But I just you know, warn us and warn our listeners that there's a kind of uncanny valley that we have to pass through here where things seem to be threatening at the level of you know ethics and politics. Could I could I um, speak to that? Please, I think yeah. there's you, you've raised an awful lot of issues there, but just a, a couple of the main ones. And you're right. The third rail is group differences. And in the paperback edition, which came out last year of Blueprint, I have uh, an afterword where I describe talk about my reactions to the response to the book. And one of those is why I didn't talk about group differences. And I, I just mentioned briefly in the book, but I discuss it more in the afterward, that the most important point to realize is there's no necessary connection between the causes of average differences between groups and individual differences. Right. So individual differences in a trait like intelligence could be very highly heritable. That doesn't necessarily imply that an average difference between, say, ethnic groups is also heritable. But more than that, the reason I've stayed away from group differences, there's a um, sort of three reasons. One is that there's much more variance. You know, I assume your listeners know variance is just a statistic measuring how much people vary. The vast majority of the variance on these traits is within groups rather than between groups. Mm, right. And so much so, like, you know, boys are better at math than girls and girls are better at verbal. That accounts for 1% of the variance. That means if you know whether a child's a boy or a girl, you don't know anything about their verbal ability or their mathematical ability. So differences within groups are far more important. The second reason I don't study it is that 
we don't have any killer methodologies to answer the question of genetic and environmental causes of average differences between groups. But in contrast, we have very powerful methods for understanding the causes of individual differences within groups. And then the final reason is, I don't think I have to study everything. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not just, you know, I'm not just being facetious there. I think it's an important point. In your discussion with Murray, which I thought was brilliant, by the way, you know, a very, it's what ought to happen. You know, these are difficult issues. I thought you discussed them very fairly. But towards the end of your interview with Charles Murray, you asked him, but, but why do you persist in studying these average differences between groups? I think you even said yeah. something about it. It seems to be, you didn't say prurient, did you? But you did, you did ask him about that. I thought his answer was very unsatisfactory. Yeah, yeah. And so I, early on, I said, look, there's lots of important things to study. Why are some people schizophrenic and others not? And most of the variants that we're trying to explain with genetics is within groups. So why focus on the politically explosive issue of average differences between groups when we don't have powerful techniques to definitively answer the question of the etiology of those differences. And that's why I think there's so much heat and so little light there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But just, again, a point of caution, and, and I think there's just, there's no avoiding this. The reality is, you know, you know I am still digging out from the consequences of having had that conversation with Charles. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, oh, so, really? Yeah. So it's like, that's at least a year and a half, something like that. That was number 73 and you're up to 210. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, it's two years, but, you know, he spent the last 25 years of his life not overcoming the, the effects on his reputation of having written the bell curve. You know, at this point, I'm reconciled to never coming out from under the shadow of having touch that topic because of hmm. the response to that podcast. I mean, people wrote articles and promoted them on social media to the, the limits of their abilities, essentially saying that, that I was a racist for having had that conversation and, and what I said with, in it. And it's maddening, but it's, that's the environment we're in now, where people who certainly are discussed as being real journalists and who you would think would have reputations for some sort of integrity and intellectual honesty to protect, will smear you as essentially a Nazi for even touching this topic. And the point I was making with Charles, you know, which was really the reason why I spoke to him in the first place, it was not born of real interest in IQ, much less you know, racial differences in, in IQ, but I'm interested in our inability to speak honestly about facts as we understand them. And for years now, I've been seeing that there's certain things that will just spring out of the data that we can't avoid, right? Whether you're looking for them or not, if you want to understand intelligence and you're not at all interested in differences between people per se, but you certainly don't want to put any you know, ethical weight or you know, moral weight on you know, human worth based on differences in intelligence, but the topic is still going to be forced upon you. And so, you know, we just have to get comfortable with that. And, you know, I'm very comfortable that we understand what the political right answer is in the end. I mean, we know we want people to have 
equal opportunities, and we know we want people to be treated as moral equals at the level of fairness in our society and, and in notions of justice. And we want to correct for the greatest disparities in good and bad luck insofar as we can do that. And so much of this, the ethical punchline for me is that this is all due to luck in the end. I mean, you don't pick your genes, you don't pick your parents, you don't pick your environment either, right? There's nothing exactly. that, that you pick, you know? And so if you're a good person who cares about the well-being of others, and you realize that, you know, there but for the grace of happenstance, you could have been in any other possible situation on earth. It's through no wisdom of my own that I wasn't born in the middle of a civil war in Congo. Then you should be committed to making the world as good a place and as fair a place as you can make it. And, and that dictates a certain kind of politics and a certain kind of ethical commitment to treating people fairly. But people don't see that you can be, I mean, honestly, there are people who will listen to this conversation, and despite what I just said, and I could rattle on in this vein for an hour and a half, and the punchline will still be, those two guys are Nazis. That's the environment we're in, and it's a very dispiriting reality. And it's only because I have taken elaborate pains to inure myself to the blowback to these kinds of conversations, that I even can have them. Honestly, in any other role in society, I mean, had I been a professor at a university, had I been a, a normal journalist who had a boss, I think I would have lost my job based on the blowback from my conversation with Charles Murray. And that's just a sobering reality of the environment we're in. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that, though. Because, I mean, your whole podcast is about just having honest conversations about topics. Now, you, you know, that is probably the hottest topic you could pick. You can talk about genetics of schizophrenia, and people don't get upset about that. Right. You can even talk about cognitive abilities. But if you talk about reading disability, nobody sweats that. No yeah. problem. Yeah. So in intelligence just is like a red flag to a bull in some ways. And then... By getting into average differences between ethnic groups, I mean, there you've got it. So that's the, the worst, well, the best case for your podcast to be able to talk about difficult topics. But I don't go there because right. of the reasons I mentioned. And there's an awful lot to learn about individual differences. And in the end, I think they're, they're very important. You know, why are some kids reading disabled and why do some people become schizophrenic or not? So you, you really did go to the third rail on it. And I'm, I, I am amazed to hear, though, that you're still getting blowback. I, I avoid it because I don't do social media. Yeah, and in, yeah, the well, in the academic press, things are you know, really going the genetic way. If you look at grants funded, for example, I mean, genetics is, there aren't that many behavioral geneticists, but they dominate research funding in psychology. They dominate the most highly cited papers in psychology. So I am an optimist, though, and I have a sense that you're not quite as much of an optimist as I am, but uh, I yeah, can or, look at this history. Or I history. spend too much time on social media. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's right. Yeah. I mean, I just don't, don't do it for that reason. I mean, it just gets you down. I don't even, I've, I, long ago, I decided I wouldn't even respond to emails or to even publish criticism of my work because I found, even back then, 30 years ago, before social media, a lot of the critics weren't honest critics. I mean, mm. they would say, 
well, what about this? And you say, okay, well, we've done research on that. And that's, yeah, but, but then what about this? And what about that? And a, and a lot of them, I realized, had nothing better to do, whereas I had science I wanted to do. And I did feel in the end, if psychology was going to be an empirical science, in the long run, if you take a very long view, getting the data is what matters. Yeah. And I, I hope in the end, you know, students of psychology will read about behavioral genetics and nature and nurture and say, well, what's all the fuss about? I mean, of course, genetics is important. So I am an optimist and I do look at things kind of with my rose colored glasses, but I see huge change. I haven't been called a Nazi for 20 years. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's great. Let's let that be uh, either the motto or the epitaph for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I'm, I'm going to don your rose colored glasses here and we will um, proceed because it's there's fascinating science to talk about, and uh, if people um, don't understand our intentions here, they will be unreachable by the powers of human speech. What is the first law of behavioral genetics? The first law of behavioral genetics is that everything is heritable. By that, I mean individual differences in traits of cognitive abilities and disabilities, personality, mental health and illness. Those traits, those individual differences all show significant and substantial genetic influence. Right. And so we should clear up some confusion that people naturally have around this concept of heritability. And then uh, we're, we're going to go into how we know all this based on you know, adoption studies and twin studies and all the rest of the actual science. But let's talk about this concept of heritability. How are people confused about it? Yeah, well, it's great you brought that up because that six-syllable word is the most misunderstood word around because it includes the word heritable, it somehow involves genes and DNA. So people have a lot of different notions of it. But in behavioral genetics, and I should say by behavioral genetics, I mean what we call quantitative genetics, like twin and adoption studies and now DNA studies. And it's the same techniques you'd use if you were studying medical disorders, for example. So it's it's not peculiar to psychology or behavior, but these are the epitome, in a way, of the complex traits and common disorders that, that's the focus of the DNA revolution now. So heritability describes the, it's a descriptive statistic, and like all descriptive statistics, like means and variance, it can change in populations over time. But it describes the extent to which differences that we observe in a trait, say like body weight, body mass index, to what extent are those differences due to inherited DNA differences between people at, in this population at this time? The, the you know, there are many misunderstandings, and probably the most common one is for people to think, well, that they confuse what is with what could be. So we're describing what is in a particular population, the extent to which people differ in body mass index, and to what extent is that due to diets and exercise or inherited DNA differences? So we're talking about differences. And we find, people might be surprised, that about 70% of the variance of body mass index in, in the Northern European populations that we study is due to inherited DNA differences. So that's often a shocker for people. Mm. We've done surveys, and people think there might be some genetic influence, but they think it's more like 30% or so. But 70% is a lot. It's not 100%, but that's a, a lot of the differences between people in body mass index are due to inherited DNA differences. But that, 
that's what is, and it doesn't imply what could be. So, you know, one of the most interesting things I found about doing my DNA and getting these polygenic scores that we'll talk about later is that my, I have a very high polygenic score for body mass index. I'm quite heavy. I'm at the 70th percentile of weight. But what's interesting about this is some people say, well, if you learn that you got bad news and your genetic risk for alcoholism, or in this case for obesity, you'll just give up and say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it. But the, the point is we're describing what is, not what could be. And certainly, if you locked me in a room and didn't give me any food, I'd lose weight. Or more than that, if I had a bit more self-control or motivation, I, I might not eat like a pig the way I would do, you know, given free access to food. So, you know, it, the difference is between what is and what could be. And the other caveat, there's a bunch of them, but the other caveat I think that's important is we're dealing with the normal range of genetic and environmental variation. That is the range of variation that we can study, which is fairly representative populations, maybe 95% of the population. But it doesn't exclude, include the genetic extremes of single gene mutations, for example, nor does it include the environmental extremes, say, of abuse and neglect. Mm. There are many wrinkles here. I, I guess the two further points I would want to make about this concept of heritability that are related to what you just said. So even if something were highly heritable in general, in any specific case, it may not, in fact, be expressed. I mean, you take like alcoholism. I, mean, alcohol, I don't know what the contribution of genetics is to alcoholism. I don't remember if you mentioned it in your yeah, book, it, but it's not real high, but it's say 40%, something right. like that. Oh, yeah. Let's say even if it were 100%, right? Even if it were just determined by DNA in a world without alcohol, it would not find expression, right? So the yes. role of the environment in any individual's case or even in any group's case, if you find an island of proto-alcoholics, but where, you know, where alcohol has not been discovered, you'll see 0% alcoholism among people who are, have the genome that would determine 100% alcoholism in another context, right? So Yeah, but, you know, but, but not even going to that extreme, the, the differences between what is and what could be. So when we say alcoholism or alcohol abuse is 40% heritable, we mean of the genetic and environmental differences that exist in this population at this time, Inherited DNA differences contribute about 40% to that liability, you know, the variance in alcoholism. Mm. And even if you say, even as you said, if it's 80 or 100% heritable, if I say, okay, I know my genetic risk for alcoholism is high, but I also know you can't become alcoholic unless you drink a lot of alcohol. So I could take that information, say, even from DNA risk for alcoholism and say, well, I've got to be more careful. Because if I drink as much as other people, I'm more at risk for becoming alcoholic than they are. And you can't right. become alcoholic if you don't drink a lot of alcohol. Yeah, yeah. So this covers things like alcoholism. It probably doesn't cover everything that interests us, but it's relevant. And also we should talk about or mention the fact that differences between people we're talking about when we're talking about heritability, we're not talking about things that everyone shares, which are also genetically determined, yeah. just having a head or having arms and legs, right? Or being bipedal, you know, or having something, some, you know, bilateral symmetry. I mean, these are things that virtually everyone has who is intact at birth. And we don't talk about the heritability of having arms and legs, 
right? Yeah, that's, that's such an important point. And we have, say, 6 billion base pairs of DNA, and 99% of those are the same for all of us. And that's what makes us human. We're talking about the 1% of DNA sequence differences, base pairs of DNA, right. the extent to which those differences between us make a difference. And the answer is they make a big difference, but it, it is differences. So if you say height is 80, 90% heritable, it doesn't mean I grew to six, what, six feet because of my genes and the other four inches were added by the environment. We're only talking about differences between people, why I'm very tall and other people are not so tall. Genetics is largely responsible for those differences between people. It really is a critical point, so thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about, in the case of, we have the three billion base pairs in each half of the genome. So we're talking about you know, 30 million base pairs that account for the difference between us. And as you say, we're 99% identical to one another, although we are, if I recall, we're 50% identical to the banana. So I don't know how, how much comfort to take there. But <laughs> Exactly right. <laughs> so let's talk about the confusion that is even more common on the concept of nature and nurture and, and how to differentiate those. And one of the, the more fascinating points in your book comes in this discussion of the nature of nurture. What's the confusion here around nature and nurture and how we can demarcate them? Well, there's that larger issue of just separating nature, that is inherited DNA differences, and nurture, that is environment. And there's a lot we've learned there. But the topic of nature of nurture is a different topic. So what would you prefer to start with? Let's differentiate nurture and environment because people think right. it's one thing and, and then they are, you know, the parents are either uh, horrified or, or happily exonerated when they learn the punchline here. So let's talk about first, what are the contributions to individual differences beyond DNA? We'll talk about nurture and unshared environment. And uh, then let's talk about the nature of nurture. Yeah, great. Good. Well, we, we talked before about the first law of behavioral genetics, that everything is heritable. And we can get more precise than that and say, on average, across all the traits that have been studied, about half of the differences between people, half of the variants of these traits can be ascribed to inherited DNA differences. Now, 50% is a lot. You know, this is effect size. The idea of how big of an effect it is, not just is it statistically significant. In psychology, it's rare to find anything that explains 5% of the variance. Mm. So 50% of the variance is off the scale, but it's a lot less than 100%. And the other 50% is actually not due to genetic differences. But what we've learned is that it's not nurture in the sense that people have always assumed it was. From Freud onwards, nurture was thought to be what happens in families, particularly parents, and what they do to the kids, like schizophrenia is caused by what your mother does to you in the first few years of life, was the line when I was in graduate school. So what we've learned is, I think, almost more important what we've learned about nurture than nature, because that other 50% is not due to systematic 
effects of the family environment. So it's probably best if I just give you one piece of data on that that, that makes that point. Yeah. Just take BMI and parents' body mass index. Parents and their children correlate about 0.3. It's when the kids grow up. I mean, at birth, there isn't any correlation at all, but they correlate about 0.3. Is it nature or nurture? Well, it was always assumed to be nurture, and that's not a, a dumb hypothesis. I mean, parents give the kids the food, they model lifestyles and that sort of thing. But the adoption studies showed that when parents adopt a child who's not genetically related to them, the correlation between those parents and their kids for body mass index is zero. Right. Sim similarly, children growing up in the same family correlate about 0.3 or so in body mass index. Could be it's reasonable to think it's nurture. But if those children are genetically unrelated, their correlation is zero. The other side of the adoption design is to take genetically related people adopted apart. These adopted children who correlate zero with the body mass index of their adoptive parents correlate 0.3 with the body mass index of their birth parents, whom they never saw after the first week of life, who had no influence over their environment. So that's the sort of evidence that for decades was used to say genetics is important. But then people realized, you know, in the 70s and 80s, that it's telling us something very important about the environment. Whatever the environment is, it's not making kids in the same family similar to one another. It's not making kids similar to their parents. And that's what I called in 1987, non-shared environment. It's important, it's making a big difference, but it's not what we thought it was. It's not due to shared family environmental influence. So what is it? Well, for 30 years, we've been trying to figure that out. Like, what is it that's making two kids in the same family different? You know, for example, parents don't really treat to their children the same. I don't know about you and your daughters. If you ask parents, they say they do. But if you ask the kids, you'd swear they're growing up in different families. Mm. And if you videotape interactions between parents and children, you do see that parents aren't treating their kids the same. I mean, like your friends, when they're sufficiently high, would probably admit to this. I mean, some kids are just more lovable and cuddly than others, you know? So anyway, there are these possible parental differences in treatment. And it turns out, we did a 10-year study of this called NEAD, Non-Shared Environment and Adolescent Development. And we find, yep, sure enough, differential parental treatment correlates with differences in children's outcomes within a family. So you take siblings, you know? And so the, parent, the parents who say are more, if you look at the relationship between parental harsh discipline and children's antisocial behavior in a family, the, the child who is more antisocial, the parents are more harsh in their discipline. Well, as always, these correlations in psychology have always been assumed to be environmental. But I think all your listeners know the, the adage that correlation does not imply causation. Is it necessarily the case that the parents' discipline of the child caused the antisocial behavior? Or is it possible that the parents' behavior is reflecting the children's behavior? And you can put this in a behavioral genetic design. And what you find is that about half of those correlations are due to genetic differences. Right. So this is, this is where the nature of nurture comes in. And 
I, it kind of took me off the track, though, of non-shared environment. And the punchline there is after 30 years of trying to find these systematic sources, we haven't been successful. I know in one of your conversations with Paul Bloom, you mentioned you know, Judith Harris's book in the 90s, which really popularized a lot of these concepts, but really results, but then also proposed maybe peers are important. And that's another reasonable hypothesis. You know, your, your daughters probably won't end up having the same friends. Maybe one of them has more academically oriented friends and the other has more athletically oriented friends. That mm. could be a source of difference. But since Judith Rich Harris proposed that, people have also looked at that. And again, there's correlations there. Kids who are more antisocial have friends who are more antisocial, you know, in a family. Mm -hmm. So the sibling who is more antisocial is more likely to have friends who are also more delinquent. But again, is it cause or effect? And it, it turns out that, you know, kids select friends. If they're antisocial, they select friends who are like them in that score. And about half of that is due to genetic differences. So that's what we mean by the nature of nurture. But it's also why we haven't found systematic sources of non-shared environment. Whenever we find something that looks like it's causing differences between kids in a family, it ends up being a genetic difference in disguise. Mm. So after 30 years, I came to this what we call gloomy conclusion that non-shared environment is essentially idiosyncratic, stochastic, not systematic. So that half of the variance for psychological traits are due to these environmental factors but they're essentially random chance. Mm. Stuff happens. Okay, so this is all, I think, more important than may be obvious to people at, at first pass here. So I just want to linger on this topic. So first, what you're saying here is that virtually half of everything we care about in human nature, you know, in our psychology, you know, whether it's susceptibility to various psychopathology, and we'll talk about We'll talk about how we think about disorders and, and whether the, the disorder framework is the right framework here. But for virtually everything in psychology and in you know, human difference, one could care about, you know, from an intelligence to you know, big five personality traits to um, susceptibility to things like depression and, and schizophrenia. The punchline here is something like 50% of human difference. It's often on, on either side of that halfway mark. I mean, sometimes it's 60%, sometimes it's as high as 80%, you know, later in life for things, is accounted for by genes. And the other half is environment, but it is not the environment that parents or anyone else can systematically control. And for the, the environmental component of things, very often, half of what is ascribed to the environment is actually genes in disguise because people, based on their own genetic proclivities, wind up shaping their environment. So I think this is an example you use in your book. You, know, you could ask someone, you know, how often does it rain where you live? If ever there were an environmental variable that has nothing to do with DNA, well, it, you know, the weather is certainly that. But then you ask yourself, well, you know, people are free to move, right? People can pick the climates in which they live, and maybe some of that is being driven by genetic proclivity, right? There's some people who just hate living where it rains, right? I, you know, I count myself as one of those people. It's not an accident <laughs> that I don't live in Seattle. 
And so it is with everything else. You know, how much TV do you watch as a kid? How often do you read? How often do your parents read to you? This all seems like it's a pure statement of an environmental influence, you know, i.e. nurture. And yet, when you strip out the influence of genes, you find that genes are accounting for half of those so-called environmental differences among people. I should just pause there, Robert, to, to ask, did I summarize that point correctly? Yes, I thought that was great. And the point to, for people to take home is correlation does not imply causation. So parents who read a lot to their kids have kids who do better at reading at school. And if you don't think about these issues, you might say, sure, it's environmental. But I hope after this discussion, people at least pause a minute and say, well, wait a minute now, you know, who are these parents who read a lot to their kids? And, right. and who, you know, who are these kids who do better at reading? It could be due to genetics. Or increasingly, I think it's due to parents responding to genetic differences in their kids. I have six grandchildren, and I thought with the first two, I thought, you know, what they're supposed to do is sit there and let you read to them. I remember you talking about reading Harry Potter to your mm. older daughter. Well, that's what I thought grandchildren were supposed to do. And with one grandchild, exactly right. I could read to her all day long, and she'd say, oh, please read some more to me. But I've got another a grandson who it would almost be abusive for me to make him sit there and let me read to him. He wants the rough and tumble play. So increasingly, I think as parents, we're responding to differences we see in our kids. And given that you have two kids, I wonder if you experienced that, this wonderful phrase that's been attributed to six different people. Parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child. <laughs> right, right. You know, with the first child, you can explain anything environmentally. That's the problem with environmental hypotheses. You can't explain anything after the fact. Mm -hmm. But then you have a second child, and almost every parent notices that there's big differences between these children. And yeah. you say, I didn't do that. Have you experienced yeah. that? Well, there, there's also there, there's one enormous environmental difference, too, which is the second child is growing up in the presence of the first. Whereas the first had, in our case, five long years of being an only child. So it's hard to figure out how to factor that in, but it, that's a non-negligible influence there. But yeah, no, I, I am noticing they're impressively similar in some ways, but they are clearly different people. The genetic deck got shuffled. Yeah, that's exactly right. In, in case parent, people haven't realized this, you know, the First-degree relatives, like parents and offspring or siblings, are 50% similar genetically. Right. But that means they're 50% different genetically. So genetics predicts that kids in a family will be different. Not, these socialization environmental theories, they have a lot of trouble explaining. Why are two kids in the same family with the same parents so different? When presumably it's these parents that are causing differences in the kids' development. Yeah. So again, there are implications for parenting here and social policy, education. We'll get to those in the back half of our conversation. But you know, all of this, again, is this is a bit of a high wire act to talk about these things without having people freak out. But we are really just talking about the facts of human psychology insofar as we have come to know them. And no doubt, we will be wrong about certain things, certain assumptions will be proven wrong in the, in the fullness of time, but the idea that genetics doesn't account for a lot of what we care about in human nature, the door seems to be closed to that 
thesis. I mean, the blank slate thesis is no longer on the table. And, you know, it's empowering in some ways. It pushes your intuitions around in others. And we'll talk about those, those effects. But we should talk a little bit more about how we know this. Before we get there, could I just kind of summarize what, what we were saying? Because we sure. covered a lot of topics, and a lot of those are very big issues for yeah, people. Yeah. You know. Go for it. And so what Blueprint is saying, there's main, three main points. First is everything's heritable. So inherited DNA differences account for a lot of the differences. Of the, the rest of the variants, it's not genetic. It's environmental. But it's not the environment we thought was important. It's this non-shared environment. And then when we find correlations, like between parents reading to kids and kids' reading ability at school, you can't assume that's environmental. There are often genetic effects in disguise. So I find what helps people put this together is, is if I tell you that if one of your daughters had been switched at birth in the maternity ward and raised in a different family, she would have grown up to be very similar to who she is, even though she was raised in a different family. Right. And that's, that's not hypothetical because we have studies of identical twins reared apart. And this wonderful documentary that won an award last year called Three Identical Strangers. Yeah, fascinating. About three identical twins and just how similar they are despite being raised in quite different family environments. So it's a dramatic illustration of this point because your daughter would, still, would be her identical twin. She's still 100% genetically who she is, even though she's raised in a different family. So. I think that, that helps people to understand it, that um, we'd be very much who we are, even if we had been raised in a different family with different parents. Right. Okay. Although we're going to have to land back on this topic and give some account of why being a good parent still matters. So we'll, Absolutely. we'll have to get there. So, okay. But before we do, let's talk a little bit more about these studies, adoption studies, twin studies adoption studies with twins. And we have, so let's just remind people of the biology here. We have two different types of twins. There are monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins, you know, identical and fraternal twins. And identical twins, you know, share the same DNA. They're 100% identical, barring some surprising mutation genetically. And whereas fraternal twins are like ordinary siblings, they share 50% of their DNA, but they just share the same environment all the way down to the, the womb. So in these studies where you, where you can compare identical twins to fraternal twins, and you can really strip out the influence of shared environment, because again, you're looking at one group that has identical DNA and one group that has only 50% similar DNA and yet shared environment. And then you have these other studies where you have identical twins separated at birth and raised in different families. And you are a pioneer in doing this work. And maybe, I don't know if you want to talk about the Colorado Adoption Project, or I don't know how you want to enter this, but let's talk yeah. a little bit more about the logic of these experiments and why they have been so compelling. Right. Well, that was a, a great description of the twin method. And, but the the punchline there is that if a trait, take like musical ability, which hasn't been studied very much, you know, and it's hard to measure, but what we'd be saying is if genetic influences are important, you'd have to predict that identical twins would be more similar in their musical ability than non-identical twins. And the extent to which they're more similar than fraternal twins, I say non-identical because in, in, in UK they call them 
non-identical rather mm -hmm. than fraternal. Mm -hmm. So if, if a trait like musical ability is heritable, you'd have to predict that the MZ monozygotic twins are more similar than the dizygotic fraternal twin. And the extent to which identical twins are more similar estimates the magnitude of genetic influence. So uh, as you said, that's a pretty powerful test of genetic influence, but the main assumption there is called the equal environments assumption. What if identical twins are treated more similarly mm -hmm. than non-identical twins? Well, that's been studied. It seems to be a fairly safe assumption. You get identical twins reared apart are just as similar as identical twins reared together, for example. But it still is, is, is an issue. But the neat thing is we have this other method that's completely different called the adoption method. And that's a wonderful situation to be in because the adoption method also has its possible, well, it has its assumptions and possible flaws, but they're completely different. And these two methods, the twin method and the adoption method, converge on this conclusion that everything that we study in psychology is heritable. So the adoption method, though, is in some ways more powerful. You can really see it with identical twins reared apart, but they're very rare. So much more typical are biological parents who adopt their child away at birth, and then you can study those adopted children and their adoptive parents who give them their family environment, but not their genes. They're not genetically similar to them. So it's, a, it's another powerful way of getting at genetic environmental influences. And I gave you the example of body mass index and mm -hmm. how adopted children don't correlate with their adoptive parents in terms of body mass index, even though they share food and lifestyle. Whereas parents who share genes and environment with their children correlate about 0.3 for body mass index. And the real killer data is that these adopted children correlate 0.3 for body mass index with their birth parents who they never saw after the first week of life. So I think together that's a very powerful indication not only of genetic influence, but of the unimportance of what we call shared environment, you know, that traditional view of nurture. Right. Which is, we should just pause to acknowledge how counterintuitive this is. We're talking about parents who have their own eating habits, which they then lavish upon their children from birth onward. And it turns out those habits, stripped of their underlying genetic cause, is not what contributes to the body mass index of a child as he or she grows up. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. So now, what about um, epigenetics here? Is there anything to say about what we know there? Yeah. When I give a public lecture, it's sort of the first question I get is, yeah, but what about epigenetics? You know, the environment changes genes. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as I say in the book, you, you only inherit DNA differences in DNA sequence. You start life as a single cell with half, three billion base pairs of DNA from your mother and three from, billion from your father. And that DNA is the same DNA in the trillions of cells in your body. We do pick up some mutations as we go along, but the genes that are expressed of those th six billion, say th three billion DNA difference, uh, nucleotide bases of DNA in the double helix of DNA. Different, we don't have the same DNA expressed in all of our cells. You know, the cells in your liver do different things from the cells in your blood and from the cells in your brain. And that's gene expression. 
different bits of DNA are turned on and off in response to the environment. But we, what we inherit are the DNA differences. And if a DNA difference correlates with an outcome like schizophrenia or alcoholism or reading disability, then that means that that DNA difference was expressed somewhere mm. and it's making a difference. But some, you know, people have really used epigenetics, which literally means above genetics, beyond genetics, to try and argue against Mendelian genetics. And I think there's, after the initial excitement about epigenetics, I think people are calming down about it and realizing, yeah, gene expression is important. Everything between inherited DNA and behavior is important. We call that expression, we, transcriptomics and tabulomics and, and the brain. Everything in between DNA and behavior is important to understand, but it's important to realize all we inherit are DNA sequence differences. Right. And if they're making a difference in terms of traits, and if they're correlating with differences, individual differences in traits, well, then they're being expressed on some level. Yes, that's right. And the neat thing about DNA is you don't need to know anything about what goes on in between the DNA and the behavior. Right. To right. be able to yeah. make these predictions. And, but that's not to say all of these other things are not important. But I just do, I like to argue against this idea that epigenetics somehow invalidates genetics because it right. doesn't. Right. Yeah, there's another detail here which is interesting and has important implications. And it's that we're not tending to talk about single genes having some overwhelming trait effect. We're talking about thousands of genes contributing tiny effects to any one of these traits, whether it's a susceptibility to schizophrenia or uh, intelligence or anything else that interests us. And that, that has some significance. Well, it has, you tell me what, what significance you yeah. see. I mean, was one, the one thing that jumped out for me immediately, which I believe you mentioned in your book, is that it gives a somewhat less than hopeful picture that any single drug target will be a high leverage target for us in improving ourselves in, in whatever way we might hope to. Yeah. Well, the most important thing we've learned from the DNA revolution in the last 10, really five years, is that genetic influence on complex traits and common disorders of the sort we've been talking about are not due to one gene, certainly, we've known that for a long time, but they're not due to 10 genes or 100 genes. They're probably due to thousands of tiny, tiny DNA differences. Hmm. Now, first I'd like to say, though, that there are thousands, some people say 7,000, 10,000, single gene disorders. These are like Mendelian hardwired deterministic disorders, like Huntington's is not, they're necessary and sufficient. Yeah. So if you have the gene for Huntington's, you will die from Huntington's unless something kills you first. And you only have Huntington's if you have the gene for Huntington's disease. And that's the problem. Everyone learns about genetics from Mendel. And Mendel was studying disorders in pea plants, like wrinkled seeds, you know? And so they're hardwired and deterministic. And he showed through that that that's the way genes work in heredity. But what's important to realize is that despite these thousands of single gene disorders, many of which are extremely debilitating, lethal for the people who have them, they're very rare. 
one in 100,000, one in 500,000. So they're very rare, fortunately, and don't really contribute much to the heritability of the traits that we study. The heritability of complex traits and common disorders, medical as well as psychological, are due to thousands of tiny DNA differences. And that's a drag in some ways. If you're trying to do a bottom-up approach, as neuroscientists you know, would want to do, where you go from genes to brain to behavior, it's going to be very hard if each of those DNA effects are so tiny. You know, you're going to definitely have to get away from a modular approach to mm. neuroscience, where you think, you know, this gene does this, and then that has that effect. You know, it, it's going to take more like a systems network sort of approach to be able to deal with the brain from this perspective, which we talk about as polygenic, that is, every trait is influenced by many, many genes. And that would include traits in the brain, you know, neurotransmitter levels, whatever. But the other word that's important is pleiotropy. Every DNA difference has many, many effects. Mm. So, you know, you name these genes based on a disorder, you know, like this gene caused diabetes, but then you find out that gene affects hundreds of other things. So this polygenic point that you're making is critically important, and it's really hard for people to understand because they're still thinking about genetics from a single gene, hardwired, deterministic perspective. Yeah, so there's a lot there. So let's break apart a few of these concepts. So yeah, there, there's an analog point to make about the brain. That, there are very few parts of the brain that only do one thing where you can say this is the part of the brain that you know recognizes faces right and this it does nothing else well you know even fusiform cortex does other things so the real picture is you know of pleiotropy where any one gene in this case contributes to many traits and also and this is a point you make in the book our concept of disorders like schizophrenia is itself misleading, and it makes sense to talk more in terms of dimensions for traits as opposed to these kind of terminal disorders. And, and you, you use an analogy, which really drives home the point, with height. You know, and maybe you want to talk about height and the, the imaginary problem of giantism to clarify this concept. Okay. It is just a hypothetical example, but it does make the point that suppose you decided you've got a new disorder here, giantism. So people over six feet, five inches, they're giants, and everybody else is normal in height. And yet you find that all the genes, there's been thousands that have been identified, you know, thousands of DNA differences. They all work. They don't, there aren't like a separate set of genes that cause people to be giants. And different from the rest of people. All of this is quantitative. It's a matter of more or less. That is, any DNA difference that is more prevalent in the giants, it will be distributed in the distribution. So people who are higher than average are more likely to have that DNA difference. So the DNA research, I think, puts the nail in the coffin of diagnoses. Now, you might say, well, that's just a stupid example. I mean, why would anyone divide height, which is so normally distributed, into a dichotomy. But I think that's what we're doing with most other disorders. You know, depression. No one thinks depression. You wake up one day and you're depressed. Depressive symptoms are almost, they're quantitatively distributed. Mm. And 
you never find genes for a disorder. Any gene you find is distributed through the population. Like more concretely, one of the first of these effects that were identified using these new approaches called genome-wide association was a DNA difference that was associated with body mass index. So this gene had an A and a T, are, you know, the four nucleotide bases of, of DNA, A, C, Ts, and Gs. And the, in the old, in thousands of years ago, we were all TT, but then someone got a mutation that was an A, and that A seemed to have been adaptive. The story used to be that it allows you to conserve fat. And in the, in the Stone Age, that would be a good thing because you never knew when your next meal was coming. But now that that is makes you more likely to become obese in a fast food nation. So if you have two A's, you're three pounds heavier than someone who has one A. And if you have no A's, well, that, that one A makes you three pounds heavier than someone with no A's, TT. So there's a six pound difference between TT and AA. That's what we mean by an association. So that was found for obesity initially. But then they found that that DNA difference works quantitatively through the, throughout the distribution. That is, if you're, you and your sibling, you have an A and they don't, you're likely to be, if we get a lot of situation, uh, siblings like that, three pounds heavier on average. But that only accounts for 1% of the variance of body mass index. And when that was published in science in 2007, people, oh, well, 1%, I mean, what's that? Turns out it's one of the biggest effects that right. we can find for complex disorders, complex traits and common disorders. So it, it's so important to realize that these polygenic scores, that is, you can put these thousands of DNA differences together because any one of them just doesn't account for enough variance to predict or to try and understand it mechanistically. But you can put them all together, aggregate them in a polygenic score, and make pretty substantial predictions. Like we can predict 25% of the variance in height and about 10% of the variance in weight by putting all of these together. So for weight, this one DNA difference I was talking about accounts for 1%, but then these other DNA differences account for 9%. So altogether, you can predict about 10% of the variance. But these polygenic scores are all necessarily perfectly normally distributed because it's, it's the central limit theorem of statistics. You know, you flip a coin and you flip a uh, hundred coins and you get this normal distribution of heads and tails. And that's what you're doing. You're, you're flipping alleles. You know, you either have one allele or the other allele or two of them. So these polygenic scores are perfectly normally distributed. So that the genetic liability for everything, any disorder, autism, schizophrenia, coronary heart disease, it's perfectly normally distributed. So I think that is really, I think, ought to put the nail in the coffin of diagnoses. Because I, I really believe in psychiatry and psychology. These diagnoses have mm -hmm. held us back tremendously. And all of the DNA studies, these genome-wide association studies, are case control studies. So the whole game is to find these people who meet these, what I think are arbitrary diagnostic criteria, and you call them cases like schizophrenics, and everybody else is a control. Right. And that's really held us back because it's just simply not true. Yeah, because everybody else who's normal 
so-called normal could be just like the six foot three person who's not classed as a giant, but still yeah. shares all of these increased height probability genes. And it means yeah. that we all have thousands of genes for schizophrenia. Right. It's just quantitative. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you have a very high, we call it polygenic score for schizophrenia, it probably takes, we all have stresses that would freak us out. And as you've mentioned several times in your podcast, uh, if you did have a genetic propensity towards schizophrenia, you probably ought to be careful about some of the psychedelics, for example. Right. Or some of the evidence suggests a high THC sort of marijuana could also be dangerous in that situation. It's like alcoholism. You know, if you have the genetic propensity, it doesn't mean you're going to become alcoholic or you, you're necessarily going to become schizophrenic. You're just more likely to be. And given the stresses and strains of life, you're more likely to be tipped over the edge than someone else. Yeah. And it's, these genes are very likely contributing to who you are in noticeable ways that, are, that puts you on this spectrum which has schizophrenia as its terminus. So like th these genes for height that would render a giant 6'5 or beyond are also operative in you at the, at the height of 5'10. It's just you have a different complement of, and we're now talking about many, many genes for any one of these traits. Exactly right. The picture is, I think the phrase you use is that the abnormal is normal. I mean, we're all on every spectrum that, that we could posit exists in the population, we're all somewhere on it. And whether we have a symptomology that's interesting or not is the only difference, right? So it's, it gives us a, a finer grained way of thinking about human difference and, and the boundaries between what is considered, you know, normative or normal and pathological. I mean, it's common to I think you referenced this in your book. I mean, ever since Aristotle, the analogy between madness and genius has been drawn. And yeah, I think probably too much has been made of that. But this is susceptible to, in the end, a genetic analysis. I mean, we can look at the genotype of whatever we want to call genius and the genotype of whatever we want to call madness and just see what, how much genetic real estate they share. Yep, that's really right. One implication I find quite interesting, too, is I'm basically saying there are no disorders. They're just quantitative dimensions. Right. And one implication of that, then, is if there's no disorder, there's nothing to cure. It's not like you, you're cured, yes or no. It's all quantitative. It's a matter of more or less. We're alleviating symptoms rather than curing a disorder. It all has to do with psychology aping medical sciences, where you know, a lot of this does work. If you have a simple cause, you know, a simple environmental cause, like cholera and impure water, for example, it does work, you know, this model. But when you're dealing with complex traits influenced by many genetic and environmental factors and disorders, it just, it just doesn't work. And it's really held back the field in, in lots of ways. So I hope molecular genetics will really be the nail in the coffin. Right. Except so there's a there's some happy implications of this, and there's some unhappy ones. I mean, the, the unhappy one, again, if I'm understanding this correctly, is if there are thousands of genes and their products contributing to a problem like, you know, what we call schizophrenia, which is, you know, the end point on some continuum that we're all on, and we want to mitigate those symptoms, well, the idea that one drug is going to do it 
seems far-fetched when you're talking about thousands of genes. So the opportunity for a treatment that truly mitigates all of the most distressing symptoms there seems diminished when you're talking about the contribution of thousands of genes. Yeah, I mean, but we do know that causes are not necessarily related to cures. So, I mean, it is possible a drug could have some general effects despite right. that complex etiology. But I don't think it's hopeless. I mean, if you have this polygenic score and you know someone is at genetic risk, you can look for interactions with the environment and perhaps find treatments, you know, like cognitive behavior therapy does seem to work in many cases. And, you know, mindfulness, the sorts of stuff you're into, could have effects despite the very complex etiology of these it's hard to use a word other than disorders, but you know, right. like the extremes of these dimensions. Right. And so, and so it is with the idea that we're going to find a smart drug that boosts our intelligence. Again, it's, that would be far easier to picture if we had found a single gene that, that you know, accounts for 20% of differences in, in intelligence, which seems not to be in the cards. You know, but again, the same sort of story. Right. You know, it, it, it could be that a drug like, I don't know, say modafinil could help you score better on tests. I don't know if it's actually going to improve your intelligence at all, but you could have these very dirty drugs that have widespread effects, but they, you know, they could have an effect, even though they're not even working in the pathways that's right. causing the genetic differences. Right, right. And I guess the flip side of this is that, and this, this comes to some of the, the more dystopian concerns that people have here, is that Given that we're talking about the influence of thousands of genes, does that suggest that we're less liable to fall into a sort of a Gattaca-like dystopia where we have genetic casts, and as we get more and more information about ourselves genetically, where, that we begin to see society stratified in that way? Yeah, well... I don't know if younger generations know Gattaca, but Gattaca is the frequent this day objection. Touch, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Should, I think but, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I, I think it holds yeah. up as a movie. It's, it's a yeah. brilliant movie, yeah. and um, it's so prescient about the science. This is before the DNA revolution, before human genome sequencing, and it predicted a lot of the stuff that has happened subsequently, some of which we might worry about, like DNA screening at birth, for example. DNA dating, you know, which sounds crazy, but it's actually one of the hottest things right now in terms of DNA. We could talk about that later. But where it went really wrong is sort of a, a, along the lines that you're making now, that it, it, is, it assumed this kind of dystopian view, whereas I think that's misplaced. It's a, it looked like a totalitarian government but what I find really interesting about the movie, if you look at it carefully, it's actually more relevant in a way than a totalitarian government. Like most of the totalitarian governments are environmentalistic, like Stalin and Mao or North Korea. Hmm. They're imposing an environmental determinism on people. They're not recognizing genetic differences between people. But um, it, Gattaca looks like totalitarian, but actually what's happening, it's kind of consumer-led. You, you remember this, the, the hero of the story, Vincent, his parents had him in what was called the faith birth. It, it was basically in the backseat of a car. Mm -hmm. And they had the freedom to do that. But the consequence was that their kid 
then was considered an invalid. And um, the next time around for the second kid, they decided to do it what they then called the natural way, which was in vitro fertilization and picking the embryo with the best genetic profile. So I think, I think that's even more interesting because that's sort of what's happening in our society. It's not a government imposing the genetics. People are using it. 25 million people have paid to have their DNA tested, mostly for ancestry, mm -hmm. but it also comes with the health sort of genetics and increasingly psychological genetics. But I, w I just want to say one more thing about it. Where Gattaca really went wrong, it was prescient in a lot of ways, but where it really went wrong is in dividing the population into valids and invalids. Because what we know about genetics is it's all quantitative. It's normally distributed. The hero of this story, who's Vincent, who is an invalid because of the way he was born, if you did his polygenic scores, he would certainly be high in intelligence. I mean, he had to compete against all these other highly selected kids for this space academy called Gattaca because they prided themselves on picking the genetically most fit individuals to become astronauts. And he did that even though he was a supposed invalid. But I, I think that was a huge mistake to think that you're going to divide the population be, into valids and invalids because it's all quantitative and it's different profiles of strengths and weaknesses that are important. Let's transition to talking about the larger implications of all this for things like parenting and education and notions of meritocracy and social mobility, because this is what people really care about. I mean, this is how we're living our lives, how we're struggling to organize fair societies. How do you see where this is all headed. And uh, I mean, if, if anything has changed since you wrote your book, feel free to bring that in here. But I can only imagine that the results of genome-wide association studies and the resulting polygenic scores that we can develop for any given trait, it's all just going in one direction, which is DNA is more and more useful as in your book, you, you liken it to a kind of fortune-telling device, right? I mean, if you had a single piece of information about a person that would allow you to predict his or her life in advance, their educational attainment, their level of well-being, the kinds of jobs they might gravitate toward, occupational success, there is no better piece of information than their genome. And that's only going to become, I imagine, more true. And that in and of itself is a, again, a provocative claim, and yet it's in the limit of a perfectly just and fair society, we have to recognize that that has to be true, because if you equalize the environment perfectly, then the only basis for difference between people will be genetics. Yeah. Well, yeah, people have trouble understanding that, and I know this is also a very um, hot issue now, but we all, a lot of us believe in equality of opportunity, but that doesn't mean you're going to get equality of outcome, which is the point you're making. If you equalize environments, relatively, what's left is the genetic differences. So you, actually, you increase heritability right. by decreasing environmental differences. And the, the bottom line that really messes people's heads a bit is to say heritability is the best index we have 
of equality of opportunity. Because high, higher heritability means you're getting rid of the environmental differences of privilege and wealth or whatever. Right. So the, just to put an even finer point on that, I mean, it's amazing. But if we lived in a world where I could look at somebody's DNA sequence at birth and be able to tell you with 100% certainty just how much money they would make and how successful they would be, whether or not they would be king, that is the world of perfect fairness and equality of opportunity. Fairness not with, with respect to biological inheritance, but fairness in terms of our having modified the environment so as to equalize everyone's opportunity as fully as possible. I mean, short of damaging people who had certain genetic advantages. Yeah. Well, one way of saying that, though, is turning that around, just saying if you equalize the environments, then you have equalized opportunity, but yeah. you're still left with the genetic differences. I would like to go back a bit, though, before we get too far off on the molecular genetics, which I'm very excited about because huh. that's all new. But the um, bit in the book that got most attention doesn't involve molecular genetics. It's just implications of finding that the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals is inherited DNA differences. The environment's important, but it's non-shared environment. What looks like systematic effects of the environment are often genetic effects in disguise. So I put those together to come up with a phrase that's the most quoted and probably most reviled phrase in the book, and that is that parents matter, but they don't make a difference. Right. And also education matters, but it doesn't make a difference. And life events matter, but they don't make a difference. Right. And so I know you've talked about this in some of your podcasts. We, I think we all agree parents matter. Maybe, maybe the words weren't so good. I mean, what's the difference between parents matter and parents make a difference? But what I'm talking about is that parents have much less control over their kids' outcomes than they think they have. And I think recognizing the genetic differences will be very good for parents because it'll help them relax and sort of watch their child become who they are. And I'm tempted, I was going to write my next book on genetics and parenting, because it just blows me away that if you look at the literally thousands of books on parenting, they don't mention genetics. Whereas I think the single most important thing for parents to know is that most of the systematic influence on who your child will become is inherited DNA differences. Mm. What you do makes much less of a difference then you assume it makes. So you don't have as much control over the environment because there are these non-shared, random, idiosyncratic, stochastic, chance sorts of events. And where this becomes very important for parents is when things go bad. You know, why do good parents have kids who have very bad outcomes, like drug abuse or schizophrenia, for example? Mm. You know, if you think, uh, it, that's really tough to take if you, you think you're totally responsible for the way your child came out, and, and you're not. And that parents matter, though, because as Judith Rich Harris said so well, you can't determine their outcomes, but you do determine their, the pleasantness of their daily life. And mm. I think the way to think about it is a relationship. You're not nice to your wife because your partner, because you want to change them. You're right. nice to them because you love them. You want life to be nice for them. So you do things for them because you want it to be nice. 
But with children, it's the same sort of thing. You, you want to make their life nice. You want to help them, like I think, find out what they like to do and help them do it. Appetites as well as aptitudes. Rather than forcing your preconceived notions of what you want your child to be on them, because it, mm -hmm. it doesn't work in the long run and it can actually be counterproductive to your relationship. So I think the message for parents is to relax and understand they don't have as much control as they might have thought they did. And to part of the enjoyment of being a parent is watching your child become who they are and helping them to do that. You know, trying mm -hmm. to make these 20 years of their life pleasant and pleasant for yourself as well. It just can't be fun to, you know, these parents really trying to control that environment to the last ounce, you know. And I, I think it's a mistake. And you will learn in the long run, it doesn't make much difference. Yeah, that's fascinating. And again, I, I think it makes people uncomfortable upon first hearing it, but I can just say personally, the effect of believing something is really not a measure of whether or not it's true, right? So like, I, you know, I, I want to understand what's true, whether or not it, it feels good or, or has good effects. But in this case, the effect on me psychologically as a parent seems all to the good. I mean, it just frees me to realize that what I actually want is happy kids developing into happy adults. And as you say, I mean, the point of treating them well, even in ignorance of this principle you're talking about, the goal isn't merely to help them develop into who they ultimately become. The goal is to have a good relationship with them. Mm -hmm. You love your kids. You want them to experience that love. You want to be loved in return. And micromanaging their development under the illusion of control is not the best way to solve for that deeper priority. And so it, I find it very freeing to, as you say, just lean back a little more and discover who your child becomes and give them, again, your, your goal is to give them all the opportunities to do that mm -hmm. in, in as healthy a way as possible. And so it is with education. And, and this, is, this is where it becomes even less intuitive for me because, you know, honestly, I've spent a fair amount of time worrying about whether the school I'm sending my daughters to is good enough or, you know, whether I have the right philosophy around, you know, how to educate them. And again, it has been a relief insofar as I've completely ceded control and, and concerns about managing all this to the universe at large. I felt much <laughs> better for it and happier for it. But the point you make in the book, and perhaps you can talk about why you think you know this, that there really is not much difference in terms of outcome between the best schools and the even mediocre ones. I mean, just what is the claim you're making about the difference that doesn't make a difference at the level of education? Yeah. Well, we started by um, studying selective schools, basically like private schools. So I'm in England, you know, where about 10% of the kids go to fee-paying private schools. And um, they're very selective. And the kids that go to those schools, at, we have these GCSEs, leaving exams at the age of 16, at the end of compulsory education. They're national objective sorts of exams that kids take. Kids going to selective schools have a whole grade higher. Translating it to American, it's sort of like an A minus on average, as opposed to the kids who go to the, what we call comprehensive, the state schools, where it's like a B minus. Right. So there's this big average difference. 
So again, people assume, well, that's environmental. It's reasonable. They have much better resources, better teachers. But it's actually all a self-fulfilling prophecy of selection. If you correct for what those kids in the selective schools were selected for, that is prior achievement, intelligence, ability to do an interview well, there's no difference in the GCSE results between the kids in selective schools and the kids in the comprehensive schools. So that's one set of findings. But the other that we've just published recently, like in the last few weeks, is about just the quality of schools. And in England, we have this amazing system called Ofsted Ratings. It's, a, it's a, an independent, the government funds this organization to go to schools with evaluators every three to five years. And it's a very big deal. They go there for a couple of days. They measure just about everything you can. They talk to the kids. They talk to the parents. They talk to the janitors, teachers. They observe kids. It's one of the best ratings of school quality that you could get. And that becomes is the essence of what we call these league tables of schools. Mm. So schools publish these results, and parents spend a lot of money getting their kids into one of these better schools. Frequently, it involves moving house, like moving across the street so you happen to be in the catchment area of one of these better schools. Well, the results we published, if nobody had asked this question, how much of the variance in GCSE scores is explained by quality of school as rated by these Ofsted ratings, which you know, are sort of the, I can't imagine doing a much better job. So the answer is 4% of the variance. It's a, it's a mm. relatively small difference. If you correct for socioeconomic status and other things, you're down to 1%. Mm. So, so the quality of the school you go to doesn't make much of a difference. And you can see that in the overlap, you know, even between the best schools and the worst schools, some of the kids in the worst schools do a lot better than some of the kids in the best schools. But how far can you actually push this? You can't push it to the utter extreme of the worst possible school. I mean, obviously, the, the worst possible exactly. school could be one where kids are abused and not taught anything, and you miss every critical period, you know, for reading and language learning yeah. and anything else, right? So when you think of things like a school that introduces you to every conceivable interest you might have, and then you're and, and just, you know, picking out your genetic proclivities perfectly, and a school that offers far less opportunity. For instance, there may be no music curriculum in a school, right? And you, you've got the genes to be a musician, but you never encounter music in school. Surely that has to matter, right? Yeah. Or are, so, you, are you saying so, if you really have the no, genes I, I, for music, I, I agree you'll find it the, some other way? Well, you will. You can these days because you can hang out with kids who are musically oriented. You don't need the most expensive teacher around to teach you music. You know, with social media and Spotify and, you know, all the other possibilities kids have for learning about music. I think, mm. as Galton said, you know, in the late 1800s, ability will out. But, you know, I take your point, though, that given more opportunities, like the private schools have much better resources, and you'd think that would allow kids to find out what they're good at genetically. So, you know, that, I, I take your point on that that the resources they provide might give kids a better opportunity to find out what their genetic niche is, what they particularly like to do. So, But you're telling us that based on the research you've done, 
in terms of the normal range of schools from from not very impressive to the best we've got and the outcomes that lead to success at the level of university the quality of the secondary school is accounting for for once you strip out socioeconomic differences 1% of the difference yeah and i know what i was struggling to get back to your first okay. point about well what about these schools that are absolutely terrible well one of the good things about the ofsted ratings is they did get rid of those schools so right. what we're left with are good enough schools but you know there's quite big differences between them and parents think there's a huge difference between them because they spend a lot of money getting their kids into the better schools i mean especially the selective private schools you know it's hundreds of thousands of pounds people are paying for that education. And if you're doing it because you want your kid to get a better achievement score, I think give it up. It doesn't work. But there's lots of other reasons, like, you know, people will admit in the end, they want their kids to hang out with the right sort of kids. They want them to make connections. I'm not even convinced of those effects, whether they're more than the self-fulfilling prophecy of selection. But hmm. that remains to be seen. So I know that's hard to believe, but you know, subsequent studies have found similar results that if you correct for what the kids are selected on, the advantage of these better schools, selective schools especially, is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. You pick the kids who do well at school, and lo and behold, they do well at school. Okay, so now how does this, it seems like this crashes into some unhappy conclusion for social policy, which is we, there are genetic differences between people that have this massive effect on differential outcomes in life, and there are environmental differences that account for also a significant percentage of differential success, but it's not the part of the environment that we know anything about controlling. Right. So then what do you do with social policy that is purposed toward countering some of the, the least happy differences in outcome we see in society? I mean, when you talk about something like differences in educational attainment or income inequality, this hurls us back onto toxic discussions of mean group differences. If we're saying that the difference between a mediocre school and the best possible one isn't all that great in the end, then in a world where we've given everyone the best possible school, we haven't made many changes. Yeah. Well, I, I think you would agree with me, right, when I say that scientific knowledge does not dictate, there's no necessary policy implications, say, of finding genetic influence. Policy involves kind of values and hopefully are led to some extent by knowledge. I'm, as I get older, I'm less and less convinced that the knowledge has much to do with it unless it happens to conform to the values that politicians want to apply. Just so there's no misunderstanding there, I, I don't think I would agree with that. In It really depends on the specifics of the case. So for instance, if we just found out that, so as you say, like so there's the difference between men and women in school genetically is you know 1% right, in terms of outcome, which is to say it's negligible, right? So knowing a person's biological sex gives you almost no knowledge about what kind of student they would be. And I'm sure you know, we could drill down on that and be more fine-grained with respect to subject. But mm. 
if it in fact is true that biological sex doesn't really matter for academic achievement, then any policy that was based on its mattering, you know, and any allocation of resources that was based on the assumption that it really mattered. I mean, let's say we just lived in a world where people thought that, you know, only men could be really good at poetry, but lo and behold, you know, we're wrong about that, but we were squandering resources on that assumption. Well, yeah, then the scientific insight would dictate that, you know, those resources are being misspent and we should change the policy, right? And so there could be there's a you know functionally unlimited number of epiphanies like that we might have given the science. Well, I agree. If you get down to a specific finding like that, that one is a can of worms because of the mean difference and all of that. But there are, I take your point that there could be some specific discoveries that you'd think would almost dictate policy implications. But I was talking about the more general level of, say, finding the heritability of learning ability, say, intelligence. There's no necessary policy implications from that, although some people fear that there are. You could have a right-wing point of view that would say, educate the best and forget the rest. It's more economical from society. I don't think that's a very smart way of thinking about it, because really advances don't just require the inventors of something. They require the intellectual capital of the society to carry those out. But there's, say, a left-wing position might be like what they call the Finnish model, where you focus your resources on the lower end of the distribution of learning ability to get all kids up to some minimal levels of literacy and numeracy so that they can participate in our increasingly technological society. Mm. So these are two very different sorts of policy approaches to the issue of the heritability of intelligence. The truth is, I think the right policy there is is the have your cake and eat it too policy. I think we want to do both. I mean, we have to give the most promising candidates in computer science all the resources they need, and we have to give everyone else who will never be inclined to code all the resources they need to participate in a world where you know computers are more and more of a thing. And so you can extrapolate you know that across every field. I just think we want we want some tide that lifts all boats, but given the differences between people genetically, I mean, you know, in the limit, once we really do have polygenic scores that tell us all too much about ourselves and our aptitudes for various things, it will beget certain choices that seem ethically fraught. I mean, so, I mean, just for instance, I mean, let's say, bring us back to parenting, which is less charged here, but still ethically and socially interesting. Let's say, you know, 20 years from now, if you're a parent and you, you can get your, your 23andMe genotype done for your kid, and you find that your kid is just in the lower bound, at the lowest tail of aptitude for something, but it's the sort of something that, you know, you don't need aptitude to actually fixate on that thing and want to devote your life to it, right? So you, ha you have a kid who's irrationally committed to some project for which they seem genetically not at all you know, likely to succeed, at minimum, it would, it would seem to merit some kind of conversation about where this is all headed, right? I mean, you, you don't want your... Sure. Because insofar as you actually think you have information about probabilistically valid information about their future, you know, you just don't want a life of frustration ahead of them. So there are implications of all of that and they'll, they'll be forced on us insofar as we think we have the data in hand, you know, whenever we cross into that 
territory of feeling like, okay, this is actually truly actionable information about what is likely to be true in the future. Yeah. Well, with these polygenic scores, a lot of scientists would say kind of the general consensus is they're not nearly predictive enough to have much effect in the real world. But I would argue they're getting there fast. You know, when I said that the quality of schools explains 4% of the variance in GCSE, 1% when you correct for socioeconomic status, we can today predict 15, 1.5% of the variance of GCSE scores with DNA alone. Tremendously <laughs> better than we can predict with the quality of schools. And presumably that will approach the upper bound of heritability, which is whatever it is, 60% or 80%. It's about, about 60% for right. a, you know, achievement, yeah. Okay, so do you see any reason in principle why at some point, we're not going to be on a podcast talking about a polygenic score that predicts 60%? That's complicated. There are some technical issues involved, like the DNA variants we're using now are common variants, and people think it might be rare variants. So the next big thing is probably going to be whole genome sequencing. Instead mm -hmm. of looking at a few hundred thousand DNA differences, you do the whole three billion base pairs of DNA, and that's the end of the story of genetics. But the point is, we only would, could ever reach 60%. It'll right. never be 100%. And that means it will always be probabilistic. And people have trouble accepting that. You know, they think, oh, if, it, if you can't predict perfectly, what good is it? Well, there's nothing pre predicts perfectly. In fact, 15% of the variance is a lot more variance than can be predicted for most things in the behavioral sciences. So mm. that's actually a lot of variance. I have the opposite intuition. A 60% variance predicted is enormous. And in some things, it probably would approach 80% over the, you know, later in life, right? And it's something we, we talked about in passing, but there are strange properties of certain traits. Like, I mean, take IQ, the heritability of IQ is like, you know, 40% very early in childhood, and then it becomes 60%, and then it becomes something like 80% later in life. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So if you told me that, again, like if I decided that I wanted to spend the next five years of my life getting into some discipline where I hope to make a real contribution, but then you genotyped me and you told me with 60% probability I was in the worst possible spot to succeed in that field, it would be rational to respond to that information by making another choice. And I just, I wonder, that does seem to get us somewhere in the vicinity of the Gattaca world. And, and maybe there's a, right. a way in which Gattaca isn't totally dystopian, but still, it's easy to see how it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And remember, the subtitle of that is, there's no gene for the human spirit, <laughs> which is, this is sort of the point you're making, that yeah. Vincent, despite the fact that supposedly he's an invalid genetically, is able to, first of all, hide the fact that he's an invalid through all the DNA detection and everything they have. But then he goes on. Vincent did go on to become an astronaut, despite the fact that his genotypic prediction is that he couldn't. But the one aspect of the prediction that would be very strong is that he was at high genetic risk for cardiovascular disease. And, and we can now predict that quite reasonably well with polygenic scores. So you could say... But Robert, the real, the sobering point here is that Gattaca was only a, a movie, and it got that part wrong. I mean, it'd be, I mean, obviously, he had the intellect to succeed, otherwise he wouldn't have succeeded. 
So whatever polygenic score they thought they were using was the wrong one, but the right one would mm -hmm. give someone, thus far, it's never 100%, apart from yeah, hunt, yeah. things like Huntington's disease. But it's still something that probabilistically, once you're getting to 60% and beyond, this is real information that mm -hmm. people will want to take into account. And then the question is, what sort of society yeah. do you have? Yeah. But what I, the point I was trying to get at was that in the movie, he had a very high risk of dying of cardiovascular disease. They said he was going to die at the age of 32. Mm -hmm. So how, how, how cool is it? I mean, to say the one thing you want to do would put your heart most at cardiovascular risk. Not to say you can't do it. He did do it. But I mean, is that cool? What if he's on his first mission? The movie ends with him blasting off to one of uh, one of the moons of Jupiter. What if he, you know, he pops his clogs in the middle of the trip? That wouldn't be very cool for his fellow astronauts either. I mean, right. so it's, it's to say, you, you know, you, it, it's just advice and it's information, but other things being equal, he could have done a lot of things. Why did he choose the one thing that would be such a massive stress on his cardiovascular system when he knew he was at very high genetic risk. It didn't mean he would absolutely have a heart attack, but he was at tremendously higher risk of having that heart attack. In fact, he was trying to cram this trip in early because he was quite convinced he was going to have cardiovascular problems later. So that's mm -hmm. what I mean about taking the information into account. If you really wanted to be an astronaut as Vincent did, you know, more power to you, try and, try and do it. But, but why, not, why not be smart about it and just say, oh, I've got better profile for this. and But a lot of it has to do with motivation. You're limiting it to the discretion of the person. But now we're talking about a society that will have social policies based on genetic screening that will seem rational. I mean, in, in the recruiting of astronauts, it will seem rational to say, well, no one with your cardiovascular profile or you know, risk profile can come aboard our spaceship. And People are, are less squeamish about physical health parameters of that sort. But once you're talking about psychology, once you're saying, you know, no one with your polygenic score for antisocial attitudes can uh, be part of our club, in the absence of having displayed any antisocial attitude in the past that anyone, you know, caught you displaying, right? So in the absence of any deed that you'd be held accountable for, but just a mere genetic again, we're, we're now using the genome as a fortune-telling device, it's hard to see how we, how we resist that slide into something like Gattaca. Hmm. Do you not see that danger, or you just don't want to dignify it with much of a conversation? <laughs> well, I guess one thing I would say is if you want to predict someone's intelligence, give them an intelligence test. DNA will never predict as well as that. The value of DNA comes in predicting early. You can predict just mm. as well at birth as you can later in life. And all of medicine is moving towards prevention. And to prevent, you have to predict. And so you could predict that a kid's likely to have Vincent's high genetic score for cardiovascular disease. And that might lead you to intervene early to monitor his cardiovascular system to a greater extent so that you can prevent some of these problems. If you can prevent a heart attack, you would save the health system a lot of money, but you'd also save the person a lot of pain and mm. um, loss of quality of life. So intelligence is the hardest thing 
to deal with. But, you know, right now we can make a pretty good prediction. In fact, predicting school performance with DNA is the strongest prediction we have in the behavioral sciences. Height is better, 25%, but 15% of the variance in GCSE scores can be predicted by DNA. So what do you do with that? Well, I think it is kind of important with your two kids. I mean, suppose you knew one had a much higher polygenic score. It doesn't mean that you then say, well, put all the resources in that one and the other one, you know, not worth sending to school. You know, as a parent, you'd probably work hard to help the kid who would have more problems with learning. But in the end, if it meant you might consider the fact that your kids are 50% different genetically, one might be very academically oriented. But for us university people, it's very hard to accept that some kids, some of your kids, might not be inclined that way. You Mm -hmm. know, my sister was, you know, slow to read. She didn't like school. Was I love school, you know? And blaming her for that or my parents for her poor performance at school, you know, just isn't right. She hasn't taken a polygenic test, but I think these genetic differences are important to recognize. They don't dictate anything, any policy in the family as well as in education. Nothing's dictated by it, but it might be useful to know. And rather than assuming that all kids have to be measured against this golden yardstick of academic, higher academic training, I think is a mistake for kids who struggle with it and don't like it. You know, kids aren't stupid that way. They, they, they know they're not doing as well. It's much harder for them to do well. And, and they just don't like it as much. So should they necessarily all be forced into that one peg in one square hole, you know? Hmm. Yeah, well, I'll just remind you, before we feel too bad about your sister, you, you have the, uh, the downside of being a giant at 6'5". <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it does speak to this issue, this underlying issue that we need to divorce this notion of moral worth from any one of these parameters. Absolutely. It's insane to be arguing that any trait that we value in society is linked to the moral worth of an individual. And there's so many things to value in people that this is actually one valid argument against the primacy of IQ. I mean, IQ is in some sense, there's circular logic here in that the claim that IQ is correlated with, with success is true. And people who fight against that, you know, are, are that project is doomed, but it is only correlated with success because it's measuring certain traits that we value, and and we value these traits to the degree that we do based on certain choices we make in society, and we could be making other choices within certain limits. It's hard to imagine that what IQ is measuring would never be valued because, I mean, it's, it is so useful in certain domains, but it's by no means the only thing we value, and there are certain things we value as much or even more in people than their, their raw intelligence, or as measured mm-hmm. by G, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, anyway, I mean, we have to break that connection, which is doing so much mad work in people's ethical intuitions. Yeah. Where, where I thought you were going with that, though, is towards meritocracy. And, and the thing you've talked about several times is that we, there should be no merit in our genetic hand that we're dealt at birth. It's, it is luck at some level. And so we don't warrant any more rewards than that. It, our genetic luck is its own reward in a way. 
And so meritocracy is based on the notion that we should dole out resources based on people's merit. And I think that's a mistake, although we're now straying into policy that's way beyond, you know, my expertise. You've talked a lot yeah. more about this than I have. Yeah, but I know it's an important point because it's the recognition of how much work luck does in our lives does have ethical implications and political implications that I yes. think you know are, are important to follow to their proper terminus, which is you know I would argue in a commitment to having a a just and fair society across the board. So, Robert, I now see that I've taken more than two hours of your of your precious human birth here, uh, and it's been <laughs> absolutely fascinating. So I just want to uh, thank you for your time and, and for having written such a, an interesting and useful book. And I want you to promise that when we cross fully into the end zone here and have absolutely shocking stories to tell on the basis of behavioral genetics, you'll come back on the podcast and tell those stories. Well, I'd love to. It's just been so great talking to you about these issues, Sam. I knew it would be, but uh, it was even better than I thought it would be. So thanks very much. <laughs>